Hello and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell story, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Welcome back to the final week of our 2021 Oscars coverage. As I mentioned before, we're doing things a little differently this year, devoting entire individual episodes to each of our three favorite awards, Best Sound, Best Cinematography, and Best Animated Feature. This week, we're focusing on the nominees in the Best Animated Feature Film category. And what a category it is this year. So many great films this year, mixing all kinds of animation styles from hand-drawn animation to computer to stop motion. Joining me today for this conversation is my colleague, Stuart Bowling, who is the Director of Content and Creative Relations at Dolby, and he consults on the technical side of things with many of the top directors of photography. Uh, so I'm thrilled to have Stuart joining me for these conversations. We were lucky enough to speak with the filmmakers behind all of the five nominated films this year, so we better jump right into this jam-packed episode. First up is a motion picture with a style unlike anything I have ever seen before, Wolf Walkers. We're joined by writer-director and three-time Academy Award nominee Tom Moore, director and art director Ross Stewart with his first nomination, two-time nominee producer Paul Young, and first-time nominee producer Stefan Roland. I want to ask you about the development of the story. Um, I, I know that the, the film is inspired uh, by the true story of Oliver Cromwell and his arrival uh, in Kilkenny in, in about 1650. What, what was it about this particular story that kind of called to you guys at this point and, and made you want to say, this is the next movie that we need to make and we need to do this now? I think um, the historical thing, the folklore thing, and then the themes that we want to to address, they all kind of converged really. And like the historical part of Cromwell's invasion into Ireland really was the perfect backdrop for a film about environmental destruction, about extinct, extinction of species and about like polarization of society. Because really when he came into Ireland, he had uh, a task, God-given task to... Uh, to quell a rebellion, to like, you know, subdue the Irish people because they were firstly, um, you know, uh, they were rebelling against like the, the, the colonialization of, of Ireland. And also he came along to tame Ireland and it was a concerted effort to, to, to make the wolves extinct and also to destroy the, the, the wilderness that they, that they lived in. The wolves and the rebels all lived in the, in the old woods of Ireland. So he came along with a concerted effort to chop them all down and pitted an older way of life against this new puritanical way of life. So really there was so much conflict there and it really, it dealt with all of the themes that we wanted to talk about. So it seemed like perfect. And also Oliver Cromwell is the biggest bad guy, the most hated person in all of Ireland. So if you're going to make an Irish film with a villain, he's perfect villain material, you know, I hope there's no relatives of Oliver Cromwell out there now, you know, feeling besmirched. <laughs> well, he was, he, we made him a lot cuddlier and friendlier in the movie than he was in real life, you know. I, I'm, I'm shocked to hear you say that because he wasn't, he wasn't very cuddly and friendly in your movie. 
<laughs> yeah, so I'm kidding. I'm kidding, yeah. No, in the movie, he was cuddlier and friendlier than he was in reality. I always joke about that. But no, I mean, the story was really, um, it really came from the idea that Ireland had been called Wolfland and we had all this mythology about the wolf walkers and stuff. And there was a connection between Irish people and wolves in the old mythology and the old Irish word for wolf, Moktira, meant son of the land. And so we kind of realized we'd lost a lot more than just the wolves whenever they cleared the forests and cleared the wolves you know that there was a an effort and it was just sort of interesting because societies more than ever kind of need stories about kids that are able to see past the division that's imposed on them by society and are able to be friends anyway so it became more relevant as we went along i think you know i, I really love that response because you, you actually i was my next question was going to be about how you decided in the writing process to focus on the relationship between these two girls. I was really surprised when I watched the movie that, that it really becomes almost like a buddy movie between Robin and Mabe. And so can you talk a little bit about the writing process and how you end up zeroing in on these two ki uh, these two young girls? At the start, I think we were focusing on Bill and Robin's um, uh, relationship, you know, uh, and and uh, Bill, Robin was originally a boy in the very first script, you know, in the first synopsis and first script. And it was really about like the first act really only only took into account uh, Robin and Bill's relationship and how Robin's life would change once Bill came in and became under the orders of the Lord Protector. And I think we got notes back fairly fairly immediately, really about like, well, what would it, what would, how would it work if Robin became a girl? And immediately, so many things started to to fit into place, and the themes made so much more sense because in 1650, if a girl wanted to be a hunter. There were so many boundaries and barriers put up, like women had no agency back then and, and girls less so. And like really you, your life was determined for you by either like the, the males in your family or else the males in society. So Robin's plight of being caged and being trapped made much more sense in that way. And I think then once once we change Robin into a girl and then she goes out and meets Maeve, she meets her counterpart, she meets her her, like how she would be able to live her life if she was free and if she was wild. And so it created this kind of buddy movie, like you say, but more of a kind of an odd couple buddy movie. Like you couldn't get as far apart as Robin and Maeve were. You know, it was it was almost like, yeah, the wild girl meets the civilized girl or the, you know, the, the girl who lives with wolves meets the girl who's grown up in a town all her life, you know. So really um, it became a, a, a way for them each to fulfill some part of what's missing in their own life you know like robin needs freedom and she gets that from mave and mave, mave needs a a bit of a responsibility and also a bit of human um counterpart so she finds that in robin and so they kind of complete each other and really once once that became the kind of heart of the movie all the rest fell away really you know like that was the part that we needed to focus on it makes sense yeah, there was a scene that we did, we drew early on where they're rolling down the hill playing together and they become like a, a Taoist yin-yang symbol where Robin's black cape and Maeve's orange hair kind of complete each other and became kind of important to always, every time the writing was going in the wrong direction, to come back to that core relationship because we knew that was really the heart of the story once we'd found that, you know. That's great. <clears throat> I'm really getting a sense from the way you guys are talking that, um, you know, you guys have been working together since you were kids. This seems like it's, there's a total family that's kind of cropped up around Cartoon Saloon. Paul, could you talk about like, how did you create this environment and this kind of really special company that's come around to create these movies that keep getting nominated for Academy Awards every time you make one, apparently? 
Yeah, that yeah, it seems almost like magic. Yes, <laughs> but you should you should be sitting in, in some of the conversations me, Tom, and Nora have. Like, geez, it's a stressful conversation. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't feel so easy. It's not easy. I mean, it's pretty hard, and it's hard to figure out. And I think uh, we we don't really know anything else because we haven't much experience of what another studio is like. I think we kind of focus on, you know, a certain level of quality. Uh, try to create a nice kind of family atmosphere within the studio where everybody's a mutual trust between people and respect between people. And we try to, we try to bring people into the studio that, you know, are going to teach us stuff just as much as we're going to teach them. And, and also put a lot of time into people, you know, and because we're in the middle of Kilkenny, we're not in some big city where there's lots of jobs around and, and lots of other studios. Kind of when we started, we we had to really commit to people when we hired them, when they came from all over, like Italy, France, Spain. And, and we really tried to make it like, oh, yeah, this is a place where you can work and we'll support you. And Tom is a, and Ross are great directors in that sense. And so is Nora, that they really take people's opinions on board and they discuss things and it's like, it takes a long time making these films. So like you build a kind of a sort of camaraderie about it, but you know, we try our best to, to get everybody passionate about what they're doing. And as long as you're, if you're, if you focus on telling an interesting story that will matter to people then people will follow you along. And um, as long as that sort of seeps out somehow around the building, all the better, you know? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, when I when I realized that, that we were going to be talking with you guys, um, we put out a call to Dolby has a lot of uh, interns, uh, you, know, you know, younger folks who are coming into the business. And uh, we got some questions from them. But one of the questions that really kind of uh, struck me, uh, you know, uh, people are very tuned into this film. Um, and one of the interns brought to my attention that the LGBTQ community really had a, a very strong response to the film. Um, and uh, were you guys aware of that? And was that surprising to you? No, we, we hit on that metaphor fairly early on because I think as a little boy there was some elements of a first crush going to be there and uh, when we made it a little girl there was the editor Dara Byrne who kind of pointed out you could read this whole movie as a, a coming out fable or something and we just said well that's a nice thing about mythology and folklore that it can mean different things for different people and where we might have said oh this was us kind of we could relate to standing up against society to be an artist or to be somehow different i think young people if, if they see that in it we weren't deliberately trying to not make that be there we knew it was one reading i was surprised how massively that was taken on on twitter but as as i as ross and myself said like that's great if people see that in it that's the beauty of folklore and mythology that we can all see our own story in it, you know. I think how it is a, a, a good analogy for that, though, is also like that part, that stage of like a, a you know, a young person realizing who they really are inside and having to stand up to either what they're being told to, to be or the box that they have to fit in. And whether that's like coming out or whether it's like, you know, changing your religion or or like leaving your, your society or just even like, you know, getting out from under the cosh of rules and saying, no, this is who I am and this is what I believe is right. That's the that's the real nugget of Robin's journey there. So it could definitely be transposed into a lot of people's, um, you know, coming out phase, whatever it is that they're, they're coming out as. It's coming out as the person you are inside, yeah. So it's fantastic to see a movie uh, using traditional animation. We've been very used to uh, moviegoers just completely seeing 3D animation all the time. Um, why did you choose traditional animation 
uh, over CGI, like a 3D. I think way back at the start of the company when Paul and I got started, that was kind of, with Nora as well, it was kind of our thing that we wanted to keep hand-drawn animation alive and kind of reinvent it and reimagine it in the face of CG. And we thought that hand-drawn animation still had a lot more to do. There was still a lot more we could say with it. And so like partnering up with um, studios like Stefan's in Luxembourg, we were able to tap into the, the best hand-drawn animators in Europe and we were able to do something um, that maybe you wouldn't be able to do in CG or that wouldn't be as organic or as natural in CG and maybe it allows our stuff to stand out a bit because CG has become the main way to make animation but hand-drawn is a bit like stop motion now it's like when you do something in this medium it, it stands out from the rest of the pack you know it brings also um, a, a, a richness and a diversity in itself which, which come in alchemy with the subject and with the narrative aspect of things, you know. I think culturally, it brings a lot of dimension, oniric dimension, and but also graphic and visual dimension that open the minds of the young spectator way more, I think, because it's let's, it, it's more free, and it's it's at the image of what the story says. It's freedom of, of being who you are, and even visually, you know, to explore and to to, to be more diverse in, in, in your, in, in your uh, aspect, visual aspect, actually. So there is a philosophical dimension for, for me, too, to explore 2D and, uh, let's say, the, the Beaux-Arts patrimony, you know, to be richer. You, you bring up a, like an interesting point about uh, your experience of going through that and with the advancement of sound and, and a technology like Dolby Atmos. Do you think... Visually in the future, the way that sound can be represented may change how you do things. Yeah, it's the final piece of the puzzle. And I think for us, Wolf Vision and everything really only came together when we worked with the sound designer and we were putting a lot of trust that they'd be able to bring the final piece to it because we stripped back the colour and we just represented the scent, but the sound and the immersiveness of being inside. So it was definitely a big part of it. And yeah, I think it's quite interesting because the further we go in terms of the expressiveness of the visuals, we also have to think about how the sound either is a counterpoint to that, but helping to root us by being quite realistic or also can be quite stylized and help us in that way too. So it actually is another ingredient that we have to take in, into consideration when we're designing the movie too. Yeah, it can, it can enhance the, the, the narrative dimension as well. Eh? Yeah, it's a huge part. And it's, it's easy in animation because you record the voice. It's easy to forget. You record the voices in a week and you feel like you've got the movie made. And then you go and work on the drawings for like two or three years. And then at the end, you spend a few months on the music and the sound and everything. And you're like, gosh, so much of the movie gets made in the last few months, you know, when you're doing the sound and recording the orchestra and everything. But just in terms of the years of your life that you put into it, it's like a blink of an eye by comparison to all the time. But it, it seems unfair. It's like at least 50% of the experience gets created in the last weeks of production. And you walk into the light out of the sound studio and you're just like blinking and going, oh, I guess it's finished it shouldn't be so quick you know and it's usually the sound guys i remember from the breadwinner over in toronto and back in saga sea it's those guys you wind up having that last drink with it's like the film is finished you've just done the mix and like the crew you have left to celebrate with are the sound guys you walk out of the sound stage right that's it you can't change a thing now that was the last mixing session and like here do you want a pint do you want a little drink <laughs> 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 
those sound guys probably drink more champagne than anyone else because like every time they do a, the sound on another film like every couple of months they get to open more champagne and drink it with the directors <laughs> so they, they have jump. a great life anyone out there who wants to get into sound design go for it all right well stefan paul tom ross thank you guys so much for coming on the show today and making the time to talk with us i you know wolf walkers is a an amazing film and congratulations on a, a really well-deserved academy award nomination thanks thank you very much for having us thanks thank you. next up we'll be speaking with our old friends pete doctor and dana murray who created the second pixar nominated film this year soul you may recall that we spoke with Pete and Dana just a few weeks ago, and this interview is excerpted from that episode, which was a conversation that I was able to moderate for the Artist Academy at the New York Film Festival. If you'd like to enjoy the interview in its entirety, please go check out that episode from our recent archives. This is producer Dana Murray's second nomination, while director Pete Doctor will be going for his third Academy Award, and amazingly, this is his ninth Oscar nomination. I wanted to start our conversation really talking about the development process uh, on the film. When you have a movie that's as beautiful and thoughtful as Soul is, you kind of have this notion that it emerges from the ether fully formed in its current state. But I understand that there was a pretty lengthy development process on Soul. And so, Pete, I wanted to ask you, what was the movie that you started to make and how did it eventually become what, we're, what we've seen? Yeah, you do have that idea that, you know, Walt Disney's just sitting in bed and he goes, Dumbo, and then it's all there, you know, and it's not the way it works. It's absolutely the opposite of that. It's like you start with one idea and then you add something and take something else away. And it's more like sculpting with clay or something, I guess. The first movie, the story of this was, well, it, it actually kind of started watching my kids. My son was going off to college. And I was, you know, as a parent, like, oh, thinking back when he was little and then recognizing, wait a minute, I remember when he was born, he basically had a personality, right? And like trying to think, like, how is that possible? Where did that come from? There must be somewhere that's not on Earth that gives you the sense of who you are. And so started playing around with this idea of, you know, uh, what eventually mutated into uh, the great before. Um, and our first story was just two souls that lived up there. The whole film took place there. Um, they looked down on Earth and said, we don't want to go. This looks like a waste of time. The long and short of it was that through their friendship, they eventually decided to go. They figured that the only thing that would make life worth it is friendship. And they go to Earth and they become Lewis and Clark, the real life uh, you know, team that uh, I gather were good friends. And you know, they had some cute ideas to it but um, I think the thing that really uh, attracted everybody was this idea of like trying to figure out where we come from and and we got to explore that for the next four years as the story grew and shifted and changed and we have a whole process which we can get into if you want that basically forces us to show our work every three months um, to each other which is a lot of times uncomfortable but you get a lot of great notes from people, and I think it's an essential part of what we do anyway, is shaping the film. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that process and sort of like, how do you develop the, you know, I, th I think for a lot of creatives, it's hard to show your work, especially at such a early nascent stage because it's so, you know, it's so you kind of have to build up a thick skin. I think the difference, 
that Pixar does is like, we never have our script, like our full script, like ready to go until literally like months after the film is done. And we ask someone to like, um, it's just, we're not proud of that, but it's what happens. (laughs) It is what it is. Um, and so, you know, our, our writing process really is like building these story reels. Um, so we're starting with the script, the script goes to the story artist, the story artist is drawing the scene that goes to editorial. They're cutting it together with dialogue, which we call scratch, like our temp, you know, actors around the studio actors, (laughs) um, and kind of music and then we every three months we do this and we get it in front of um you know uh, as many people as we could fit in our theater which is like 240 people or something and um we get a lot of notes and we tear it all down and we start the whole entire process over and um on this film we did that set we had uh, we had time to do that seven times we're on inside out. I think we got to do 10 or 11. So wow. it felt very quick um, for animation. It was, it was fast. <laughs> the weird thing is, I feel like for me anyway, that's where we find the films, right? In right. editorial. And uh, we are kind of essentially editing it before we shoot it. You know, we're having these st- stand in images that will uh, represent, oh, we need a shot that's four feet, seven frames, that's a close-up of Joe or whatever it is. Do you do that before you do the voice recording sessions with the with the actors? So you have what, uh, just a, <clears throat> you have um, a stable of folks at, at Pixar that you do scratch recordings with? Is that how you kind of flesh that process? Yeah, out? we call them the Pixar players, you know, a group <laughs> of anybody we can drag into there uh, who's who's got any acting chops at all. Mm-hmm. And it's usually pretty for, clunky. <laughs> yeah, for, for this film, we did, we hired a local actor to do our scratch. So sometimes for your key main characters, you may bring in like more, like yeah. a, yeah, someone with a little bit more experience. Um, so that was helpful. So... My understanding from reading is that the, the the plot line really kind of originally focused on the character of 22. Um, and I'm curious sort of where, how, at what point did, did Joe Gardner come into the picture? Um, and, and how did you, how did you kind of alight on jazz as a great way to explore some of these kind of themes? I was just looking through some of the earlier drafts. I think the first version, Joe uh, had amnesia and he knew he was not a new soul, but he could not place where he was from. You remember that, Dana? And so the whole film was like an unraveling of this, oh, wait, I had a flash of something. And I, we tried the the idea that he was an actor, because that seemed kind of fun and intriguing, but what we kept getting notes back from people saying, oh, he just wants to be famous. That's not, not appealing. So we were looking for some kind of like pure thing, you know, and, and we figured, well, I, jazz, I've always loved jazz. And you don't go into jazz to get rich and famous. You know, you do it because you love it. And uh, um, so that seemed intriguing. And then as we got into it, man, the, the the thematic elements of jazz are so, you know, like the idea of you're improvising. You know, you're given a tune, but what you do with it is so personal. And it can, you know, obviously as a musician, you're trying to make it something beautiful and unique and, and uh, never before seen, which is just like life. You know, and so the more we learned about jazz, the more it made all these other decisions for us in terms of really connecting thematically with the film, even things like Joe, you know, jazz is black improvisational music. Joe, our main character, should be black, should be African-American. A lot of those choices grew out of that simple idea of using jazz in the movie. 
Um, Dana, one of the a question that I have for you is, you know, I, I feel like with each new film, Pixar kind of breaks some new technical ground. And one of the things that, that I, I love to talk about in our programs is how artists are using technology to tell story. What were the big challenges on Soul in terms of, of you know, new technology that you had to develop or utilize in order to tell this particular story? Definitely the cracking the look for the soul world was incredibly difficult. Um, it really, we, we, we made art and technical one department just cause really we couldn't find that look in a painting. They really needed each other to um, discover. So um, I'd say the tools that were new were um, for our soul characters specifically um, the, you know, they're very ethereal and non-physical and all these words of like, okay, we need them to like show up on screen. So we need them to look like something, but we use these line work, which we hadn't done um, so that you can kind of read the the forms as they're moving um, hands, especially. But line, the work, most... line work like you would associate with 2D, like cell drawing kind of animation? Well, kind of, I mean, like on, on the model, um, Cause, cause they would be kind of formless without it, but yeah, it was mostly, you mostly noticed it on the hands specifically. Um, but the, the most difficult character, which we found out was the second most difficult Pixar character ever was um, actually the Terry and Jerry's, which we thought Pete and I, when we saw it, when we, when we were developing it in art, we were like, oh my gosh, this is like a line. Like the animators are gonna love this. So fly through these shots. And it, was, it ended up being so hard, which, you know, now makes sense once they explain it to you. You're like, oh, but they also had a lot of fun doing it. I'd love to uh, uh, for you to talk a little bit more about the the production design uh, on the film, and specifically, you know, you, you you set such a contrast between New York City uh, and and the the after and before life. What were sort of the what was your inspiration in terms of the visual design uh, for the the great before and the great beyond? Jazz was a huge influence on the city. You know, you look at the great album covers of jazz records from the 60s and the 70s, it's got these angles and rhythm to them and color and they're super poppy. And then we wanted the opposite of that, because when you think of souls, as Dana mentioned, it's ethereal, non-physical, you know, invisible. And so we were looking for ways to capture that. I guess because of the philosophy stuff I mentioned, we first looked at ancient Greece and we were imagining people standing around in robes, philosophizing and learning the sort of uh, ideas that would help them through life. But then we felt, well, we don't want to accidentally say everybody's Greek. You know, uh, it's supposed to be that the world is populated from the souls from this place. So we wanted it to be non-specific culturally and so that caused us to really simplify the forms down to almost like mathematical much more pure kind of shapes um we also you know it's i, I was remembering uh this weekend the first attempts at the great before were much more abstract it was just like color and blobs and things like this and then the characters in there and we found it was so disorienting to look at, to just imagine, okay, this whole movie's gonna take place and I don't know where anything is. You know, it was it was not the feeling we needed for the storytelling. We needed the characters to feel like this is comforting and, and welcoming. And so um, we really needed to adjust our sense of design to work for the story, even to the point of almost hinting at nature. You know, there's these uh, grass kind of uh, things that Joe falls into and, hills, rolling hills that are arranged in a mathematically kind of 
uh, pure way, but still evoking nature uh, for that sense of of comfort. Uh, you know, uh, th- I, I do come from the Dolby Institute, so I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about uh, Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos and how how those technologies opened up some possibilities for you in storytelling on this particular film. I was so um, skeptical of Dolby Vision on on because you know every couple of years something comes along and you're like, well, that was a lot of work for nothing. <laughs> and when we saw Inside Out. I was blown away. That was a huge, uh, I wish everybody could see our movies that way. And I'm not just saying that because you're on. It's, it's, it's like colors that I didn't know existed. It brings this uh, vibrancy and contrast and the darks are so dark, you can't see whether the projector's on or not. It was like, uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think as we were making this film, sequences like where Joe is going towards the, the great beyond that glowing white light we were through the whole time going i can't wait to see this on dolby vision because it's the darks just go away the edge of the frame just disappears and you're in this space and uh yeah it's uh it's a pretty fabulous uh technology fantastic well i think that's uh i think that's a great one to go out on so (laughs) pete doctor dana murray thank you so much first of all for making such an incredible extraordinary film and for taking the time today to 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 talk to us about it's been a pleasure to be in conversation with you that was fun thank you thank you yeah appreciate it joining us next is the filmmaking team behind farmageddon First-time nominees Richard Phelan, Will Becker, and Paul Cooley. I should note that the full official title of this movie is actually a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon, in case you had any doubt about who the star of the movie is. Unfortunately, Shaun the Sheep couldn't join us on the podcast because, well, he's a sheep and he doesn't actually speak. All right, Richard, Will, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today, and and congratulations on uh, making... Farmageddon, a Shaun the Sheep movie, or is it actually a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon? I, I get a little confused about the proper ordering of the title. <laughs> so do we. <laughs> it is the second one. It's a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon, is its official title. <laughs> very, very good. All right. Well, uh, I really, really enjoyed this movie. This movie was so much fun. And, you know, Stuart and I have a lot of questions uh, about the process and about how you guys made this kind of magical film. There is a long process in these films. Um, do you kind of want to give us like a high level view as to like how you start and then uh, how that then brings us to the end? I guess as the producer, I'm kind of involved from day one, which, um, you know, literally in the very kind of, you know, first conversation about are we going to make a film? So I produced the first, Sean, and, you know, was very heavily involved in the financing as well as the creative of that film. With this one, we came out of the first film and everybody said, we've got to make another one, Um, which sounded like a great idea. But obviously we then... You know, there was a lot of kind of conversation about well, what, what does that mean? You know, what, what, what do we do next? Because the first film was this kind of lower concept idea that kind of came out of the characters. This time we wanted to go with a bigger idea. So we started that process about four years out from the release of the film. Um, and probably the cycle of making the film was about three years. So about a year of sit being locked in a room trying to work out what it was about a year and a half of continuing that process and starting the early storyboarding and then a year and a half of 
the physical production and the post-production. It's a recurring or it's a kind of a thematic element of the, the Shaun the Sheep saga, the universe, that there's no dialogue. Uh, and I'm, I'm always kind of amused when I read stories about these, uh, about these movies that, that refer to them as silent movies, cause they're not, they're not silent at all, but they're just, they don't have spoken dialogue, uh, in kind of a traditional sense. So I'm kind of curious for you as, as, as writers and storytellers, uh, that's must be so terrifying. Do you ever kind of like have a moment of like, oh my God, how are we going to make this work without being able to lean on dialogue to communicate plot points? The story process, um, is incredibly intense in their rehearsal stage. So like um, on average, like I've worked on several features, there's an average of around about 100,000 storyboards. And for Sean the Sheep, it's closer to a quarter of a million because um, every nuance has to be communicated um, during the drawing stages. It will be plus later on, but it has to work as that first animatic. And so we'll board it, screen it, and make sure that everyone understands like emotionally what Sean's going through and all the plot points are there. Yeah, sometimes you go, I wish you could talk or Lula could talk, but then you just sort of, you have to just keep going through this process and finding clever ways to sort of like signify that they understand each other or they understand what's happening around them. And so it really is a sort of testament to this sort of constant rehearsal phase. We're always checking it in edit with a registered sim and sort of tweaking things and sort of pulling it apart and putting it back together in different ways to make sure that like, we found the best way possible. Uh, and then the same truth then becomes for comedy as well. Like every gag is sort of like fine-tuned, like constant. Like, does that work? Take it apart, do it again, screen it again. Is the laughter bigger? Um, like it comes down to arguments of going, this laughter is a six, but could we make it a seven? Um, so it just goes out like on and on and on until um, production begins. And even once production begins and we start to get like footage back into the edit, will be finessing all the way until they take it away from us and give it to the world. See, I, you bring up a good point there about like finessing and, and like uh, dialing in the humor. Um, uh, the animator Chuck Jones years ago had said that in making the Wile E. Coyote cartoons that he had finessed it to the point that it was like 18 frames for Wile E to disappear, but then it was a further 14 frames before you hit the deck. And that if he deviated from that 14 to 13 or to 15, the, the, the laugh was completely different. So I was just kind of curious if you guys had like set frame limits with regards to certain gags. That's, that's a really interesting point because we do spend a lot of time pacing out those boards to get the beats to work. And then obviously when the animators get hold of them, we try and get the animators to, to hit the beats because if you, as you say, if you, if you deviate or if you sort of merge the beats together, you can totally flatten a joke and, and it's very fine tuning. And some of the animators just a, a really good natural sort of, they have really good comedy timing and maybe others we wouldn't put on that stuff. We just put them on more of the performance or, you know, action sequences because it is quite a personal taste thing. And there's only so much we can do in edit afterwards because it's stop motion and it's, um, you know, it's quite organic, the performance. So, yeah, we're, we're limited. So that's why we try and basically get all the timing working beforehand. And then, as Rich said, we do do live action as well, but we can never hit that in live action quite the way we want it. Yeah, because it's, it's about rhythm, isn't it? The whole, the whole kind of 
process of telling a joke or, you know, and the story, everything about, you know, what we found with Sean over the years is that rhythm of how the film unfolds and the jokes unfold, you know, is really crucial. So that process of timing, as, you know, the guy said, you know, is crucial. So everything from the number of boards that we use to the amount of time we spend editing it to the amount of, you know, the exact nature of what we're asking the animators to do. You know, it's, and we'll, we'll often, we have, we often will say we need to redo that gag because it doesn't quite land. You know, it's, it's, it, it, it is a process of trial and error, which we got, you know, we get better at each time. I, I imagine in that sense, the, the sound design and the music take on even greater importance than they might with other forms of animation. So can you talk a little bit about how you use sound design? And, and I'm sure that you're engaging them from the very beginning of the process when you're doing animatics, right, to build out the audio of the world. And then does that follow through to the end or how does that process evolve? Absolutely. From the very beginning, once we've started the animatics, we're putting in temp sounds everywhere. So like the same way with um, with the comedy, like the sounds can sort of enrich it or get in the way. So we're always sort of like moving things around and trying things out. And then um, just the world, the soundscapes, because obviously there's no sound being recorded on set. And so um, we'll have sort of key dialogue at the moments where like they'll do effort sounds or sort of temp sounds. Uh, but then suddenly it's sort of like once the sound designers really sort of come into their own, like they enrich this sort of world. So Sean's world is very natural and then sort of like Lula's world has this sort of ethereal quality that they're bringing to it through the soundscapes. And then like the underground base and the agents, it's sort of like this sort of cavernous hollow sound. So it's like we'll discuss it with them and they'll start sort of pulling together ideas and sort of going, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? But then at the same time going... Um, to remember the tone that it's also like a sort of light comedy so you don't want to sort of go too heavy with sort of any of the me mechanics of anything but then also there's a nice sort of twist where when the spaceship lands at the start of the film and you don't quite know yet that Lula's a friend or a foe like the sounds are very guttural and quite frightening and the spaceship feels very heavy and then later on you meet her she's got sort of buoyant fun about her and then the spaceship gets a sort of like pootling through water like like sort of like a Jetsons car sort of feel to it so it just becomes much more sort of buoyant and fun and fresh that actually kind of leads me to another process question which is I, I think you know when people uh think about stop motion animation they understand that animators are making frame by frame adjustments to the characters and whatnot but i think one of the things that that not a lot of people realize is that you build you know big sets for the real sets for these uh, uh for these figures to live in and be animated in So tell us a little bit about sort of the, the actual production process. Is this like kind of a, a huge room that you just have all these sets lined up in and how big are the sets and what were some of the most challenging sets to, uh, to construct for this particular film? It's a, a much bigger scale than any Sean, uh, uh, you know, film before. 
I guess the studio itself is it's huge. It's like an aircraft hangar. So during the production, there's about 35 units running all at once. And so they, they can range and scale from like just a bit of hedge that Sean will stand by in a close-up to like um, the underground base, which is this sort of colossal set. It's, um, I can't quite remember how big it is, but I think it's about 40 feet long. These underground agents on it, and so the animators have to climb onto the set and sort of move every single one and not knock a single thing. Um, but it's just magical, like the whole process of building that. So it starts with a concept painting, and then we have these sort of like round table meetings with the art directors where they'll go, Is it dynamited rock or poured concrete? And then they'll bring in like these miniature versions of everything, and this is what dynamited rock would look like. And then our cinematographers will start lighting it for all different effects. So it's like we were saying. It's like, it should feel like a shark's cave, like it should feel cold and sort of very menacing. And so they'll just start to look for ways to create shadows that give the illusion of more sets that you can't see going off into distances. Um, and then like, it just, it just suddenly takes on a life of its own because then all the art departments, they're all big sci-fi fans. So they're all sneaking in little Easter eggs here, there and everywhere. And they're quite pleased with themselves. Like you'll walk on set and they'll go, have you seen it yet? What are you talking about? So you have to sort of like hunt for it, like whilst they're talking. But then also just the joy of filmmaking. They built tiny steam backs inside the underground base, which our editor loved. Like he sort of like coveted it from day one. He's going, when this is all over, can I have that? And so it's like, there's a real sort of love of just building in the art department. It's great. How much of the physical models actually changed over the years? Like traditionally it was referred to as claymation. What are they actually made of now? Yeah, they're, they're still um, they're still clay for the most part because that's the most expressive thing for the animators to, to get the performance, especially from the, the face and the brow and the, the mouth shapes. Um, but within them, there's a lot more components now, like um, we've got rapid prototyping in use and they have very complicated skeletons inside, which are engineered metal. And also we use a lot more silicon now. So in the past where a character like Lula, who has a quite a detailed sculpt, for example, on her body, there's paint and color on that, which would just be really hard to do with plasticine. It would take way too long for the animators to do it. So it's really, you know, we've, we've been evolving the process of how we make the characters. Um, all the way, you know, every film basically it, it, it develops. I think the Sean probably was the same from Sean one, um, but they have to basically remake them all the time. So whenever we've got about 20 Sean puppets and whenever the animators get too heavy handed, they break, you know, their arms break or their legs fall off and they basically go back to model making to a little hospital and get put back together and come out again. By the end of the film, they're totally, you know, 20 new Sean the Sheeps. Will, Paul, Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today to talk about a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. I trust that this is just the second in many Shaun the Sheep movies to come and that we'll all be able to have this experience at a proper cinema uh, before too long again. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Next up, I'd like to welcome Glenn Keane, Jenny Rem, and Palin Chow, who brought to life the animated musical Over the Moon. These are the first ever nominations for Jenny and Palin, while Glenn will be going for his second Academy Award after winning Best Animated Short, along with Kobe Bryant, 
for their collaboration entitled Dear Basketball. Jenny, Glenn, Palin, thank you so much for joining us to talk about Over the Moon. It's a real pleasure to have you all on the uh, the Dolby Institute podcast. Um, I wanted to start, oh, and, you know, obviously, congratulations on your Academy Award nomination for this movie. It's uh, uh, well-deserved. Thank, thank you, you Glenn. So much. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, Over the Moon is the story of Fei uh, Fei, this young girl who has lost her, her mother, and she gets kind of consumed with this story of Chengye, the, 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 the Chinese moon goddess, and decides to, to try to get to the moon and attempt to thwart her, her father's new marriage. Palin, I'm really, I want to turn back to you. I'm fascinated by the development process of this film and how it came together and how you kind of put all the pieces together and put this amazing team uh, assembled to, to make this film. Sure. Um, so the inception of this film was actually um, December 2015 in Shanghai. Um, it has a very precise moment of inception because Janet Yang, who is one of our executive producers on the film, came to like a brain trust brainstorming summit at Pearl Studio, um, at, in, which is headquartered in Shanghai. And she pitched this idea of doing a modern day retelling of the Tonga myth. Um, but seen through the eyes of a little girl named Fei-Fei trying to get to the moon to prove um, if she really, really exists. And uh, my journey in looking for a director took me to Annecy, France, of all places. Um, and I didn't go to the festival looking for a director, but I went to the festival and saw that Glenn was there and he was going to be giving um, a master class talk about... Um, what he loves about animation and filmmaking and characters. And so I knew I had to get to that talk. Um, was very, very interested um, in hearing. And um, what I, uh, long story how I swindled my way in through meeting Jenny and you know begging for tickets because it was totally sold out and the whole deal, but got myself there and um, it was a life-changing talk because um, everything Glenn was saying, I felt like he was sending me a secret message of I want to direct Over the Moon because everything he was describing was in this movie. I really do believe that the very best things in life are a gift. The things that you don't necessarily, you're not working towards, but they come in from the side and uh, Paylin approached Jenny and I afterwards and with this script um, over the moon and asked if we would make it with her and uh, reading the script it was it was incredible um, for me it's always about the character do you can I live in their skin can I be them and Fei-Fei was such a fantastic character that believed the impossible was possible, but also there had to be what Walt Disney called the plausible impossible. There had to be the science and the physics and the math, and, and she had that. And I just thought, this is going to be such a great character. I, I, have to, I just have to do this. Um, and I approach everything as an animator, even though I would be directing, this she is going to be the vehicle for the audience uh, to experience this 
journey to the moon through her. So, you know, we said yes, and it was just an incredible experience. Ginny, do you remember what was your first reaction to reading that script? Yes, um, very vividly so. <laughs> I, I think um, by page 20, I was in tears, like sobbing. Um, not only because of what um, the, the story of what Audrey wrote and how this family was overcoming this tragedy and this loss, um, but also just the, the representation of a 12-year-old girl in China and it's her story. Um, it, it made me feel like I wanted to write a fan letter to Palin about um, just growing up having a character that um, I would identify with, to be able to make a film that I could share with all of the Feifeis in the world or even the Chins of the world um, to see that. I just felt like everything in my life had kind of led me to this moment to be part of this project. And I, I was already like so committed by that page 20. I was like, I have to do this. There's like no way that I could ever um, not be part of this. So yeah, very much so life changing. <laughs> That's great. I'd love to hear from you about um, your kind of journey of, of authenticity uh, in the film. Um, our friends at Netflix have been very generous and given us some clips. And I know we have a clip from the family dinner sequence that happens pretty early on in the film. And, and I, I know that there was a lot of attention paid, uh, especially, uh, even to the food that's being served at the, at the family dinner sequence. And so I'd love to hear just sort of about, you know, Glenn, especially from you kind of being an outsider to Chinese culture, what was the, what was the journey that you made in the research that you did with the team to make this as authentic as possible? Well, Palin turns out to be an awesome tour guide as well. So she invited uh, Jenny and I and uh, our little team to uh, China. And, you know, it, I, I, I really believe that creating something from the point of discovery, when you first learn it, there's this intensity like my granddaughter, she loves lizards. She comes running into the house. You should see the lizard I just saw. And she's so excited. And that's how I felt uh, going there. Um, everything we saw, we heard, we tasted, we smelled, we touched. All of the senses. That's what this movie was going to be about. One of the artists, uh, L. Working at Shanghai, invited us into her home. Uh, we had this wonderful family dinner there with the grandparents and the uncles and the, the kids, and sitting around this round table with the, the lazy Susan. And and I started to realize that you know my experience of China was from a very very limited point of view. I just thought, oh, that's a convenient way of getting food around a lazy Susan. But it was much more symbolic of a shared life together. Um, and I started to, to realize how deep the roots of family are there. So Over the Moon um, is, is being presented uh, on Netflix and, and Dolby Vision uh, and HDR. Was that a, a technology and a format that you were aware of when you were designing uh, the, the film and specifically the Lunaria sequences? And was that something, was that capability something that you were thinking about in terms of like, oh, we have this extra capability 
to to make this very stunning. Yeah, we did talk about it very early on. We went and we did a little um, color test on what's possible, um, but we were already well headed in the in the direction of pushing Lunaria to be the wildest thing you could ever imagine. Um, so I think it just was a fortunate um, thing where it came together where we're like, you know, maybe people will already without the Dolby Vision think this is like the wildest thing I've ever seen. But then when you see it in Dolby Vision, you're just um, overwhelmed by the the spectrum of color and the, the, the lights and the darks. What Glenn was saying is like, you need them all just to feel the range and the depth of what's possible. And, you know, we did our post during COVID. And so it was a very difficult process to do our, um, our, our color grading and all of that. Um, but time and time again, we were just overwhelmed every time we did see it and, and Dolby Vision, it was just like, wow, like no one could ever imagine these colors in that range. And, um, and it was so beautifully done. So, um, Thankfully, we were able to get it all done uh, safely <laughs> during COVID, and I'm really proud of what we um, were able to accomplish. And it's it really is. I mean, there's no this world was meant for that kind of rage, <laughs> you know. There's a particular moment where Feifei is flying with the lions into Lunaria for the first time, and. Um, it, it was such an important moment. We are, this is, this is Dorothy stepping into Oz at that point. Cause you, you land and it's just gray, black and white, the moon colorless. And it was one of the first things that Celine did was in a painting was the red lions on black space. And just like, yes. And then we were going to, that's the intro into it. And then, Boom, this explosion of color, except you're flying through it. And these buildings glowing from the inside, they were also moving slightly and they had a little sizzle around them of light that was, they were alive. They were all born from Chang'e's tears. I remember sitting with Stephen Price, our composer, and saying, I, I, I believe that color is very close to music. I mean, there is a, a tone that color has. And as you fly by these, the different buildings should have tones as well. As we started working with our sound designers and our composer, and you fly through there, you can hear tones change as you go past these buildings. But um, part of the frustration Glenn, when you're working on a movie like this, is that you put so much, so much into it and people don't know it, but they feel it. it there's there's a, a phrase called or a word called sprezzatura, and it was a word from the Renaissance, and it means art that hides its art. And there is so much art hidden under the hood in this movie, but it you just you just believe the world because it's there. So of all of the films that are nominated this year for the Academy Award for Best Animated Film, uh, I, I, Over the Moon is is the only one that is a, a, has a traditional musical element to it. 
Um, and it feels like in a, in a sense that that's uh, something that kind of modern animation uh, as a trend is kind of shying away from. So I'm, I'm kind of curious uh, for the three of you, um, was this always uh, conceived of as a, a full on traditional movie musical? Uh, and why was it why was that an important sort of genre choice to tell this particular story? Well, when I was reading the script, um, something was speaking to me that the moments that Audrey had written were so deeply felt and real. And the story was dealing with such mature themes. I mean, this was not a film for kids. This was a film for human beings dealing with real issues of loss, and death and life and love. And, um, and I realized, wow, we are in deep territory here. And how, do you, how are we going to tell this story with a light touch? How do you bring the truth of these moments without being um, preachy? How, how are we going to do this? And uh, from, from my experience, music written with great lyrics um, can touch the audience and come in the back door. And this was going to be really, really necessary for this film uh, to have that kind of an impact uh, for the audience. And so I presented the idea to Jenny. She agreed. Um, and we, we spoke to Kay Lynn and Audrey um, saying, you know, we think this uh, could be a musical, should be a musical. Um, and they both, their eyes just lit up, said, yes. I mean, it was as if it was a test. Like, we were waiting for you to, find, to see the same thing. And so... Uh, Hey, Lynn has an incredible, deep love of musical theater and being in New York. Uh, Jenny and I went out and we started to to meet some of the folks that Hey, Lynn was introducing us to. And, um, and it went on from there. I know you got to work with Gary Rydstrom, who obviously is, you know, he's well known to the audience of this podcast. Uh, he's a legendary sound designer uh, who works up at Skywalker Sound and uh, did a lot of the sound design on the original Pixar films and is Steven Spielberg's longtime collaborator. There's such stunning sound design in this film. I'm thinking about the the, the mountain bike biker sequences, uh, the, 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 the audio design of those devices. And then the, uh, the leapfrog sequence is from a sound design perspective, just gorgeous and stunning. So can you talk a little bit about working with, uh, with Rydstrom and kind of the importance of sound design to building this world? Gary, uh, somebody I've known for a long time, probably 20 years. Um, and watching him come from uh, sound in live action, you know, working on Star Wars, and and then coming into animation, he brought the same childlike love of creating sound effects into animation. Animation sound effects are um, are so hand in hand. There was a guy when I started at Disney; um, they had a sound effects room that guy, Jimmy McDonald's, who created the sound effects. Um, and there was still all of the little sound effects items in there. And it 
it was so cool because you'd bump into a box and you'd hear Tinkerbell. And you go like, what? What was it? And you open it up and there's these, these little chimes in there with a padded box and Tinkerbell was there and they still had all the sound effects that they had created. I remember talking with Gary about that and how excited he is in inventing, designing sounds. And he built a team for us that we work really closely with that were just, they were, they're animators. They're animators with sound. They are creating, inventing. Uh, oh, I remember Jeremy, one of the uh, guys working with with Gary. We had to we had to have somebody in the back of Lunaria in the concert hall when Chang'e comes out, and there's there's this moment of awe before the song starts. But in a concert, there's always that one voice of somebody that just hollers from the back, Chaga! You know, it's just, <laughs> just somebody hollers, but it had to sound like that. So Jeremy ended up crawl, going up to the, to the roof of the building he was in and covered himself in a blanket and recorded him hollering that, so it had this weird little muffle. It's one of my favorite moments in the movie. Just that little voice as, as a Lunarian hollers that out all the way through that kind of attention to detail and love and care of making it feel true to uh, the dirt bikes flying across, kicking up moon dust, hitting the lens of the camera as you're flying along with it um, to the sound of the orbs of the buildings as you're flying through it uh, to the the deep breath of these um, flying lions that are breathing and, you know, and, and poor little Bungie is afraid of them. Um, oh, this, this is, this is why we make movies. Uh, I felt like I was a kid. I just, I love sound effects. Fantastic. Well, I think we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up and end there. Uh, Palin Chow, uh, Jenny Rem. Glenn Keane, thank you so much for joining us today and being on the show to talk to us about this film was just a great gift to watch and it was my pleasure to do so and congratulations on your Academy Award nomination for it. Thank, thank you, you so much, much, Glenn. Such a pleasure. What I love about the nominees this year is just the variety of films in this category. And our final nominee is the Pixar film Onward. And it's nominated filmmakers Dan Scanlon, the writer and director, and Corey Ray, the producer. Both Dan and Corey are celebrating their first Academy Award nominations this year. Let's hear what they have to say. Our, our podcast is really about how artists use technology to tell story. Uh, and we're happy that you guys are joining us for our, our conversation with all the nominees for Best Animated Film, which is a pretty, it's a pretty cutthroat category this year. Dan, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, uh, I've read, obviously, that, and as you mentioned, this was a very personal story for you, and it came out of the experience that you had uh, of losing your dad when you were when you were quite young. I'm just curious, what is it like to have such a deeply personal childhood experience kind of come to life with hundreds of people working on it, and it becomes a major studio tentpole movie? That must be quite a quite a wild ride for you. It's so surreal. My brother uh, always says what world is this? <laughs> you know, when he finds out like Chris Pratt is going to be playing a character based on you, or there's going to be walk around Disney world based on 
you know, our story, uh, it's very surreal. And these are, in my opinion, some of the best filmmakers in the world that made this film far better than I could have ever imagined on my own. So the fun of it is, is it goes from being your little tiny or the nugget of your little personal experience, but then obviously you dramatize it. And as folks come in to work on the movie, they add their story to it. They say like, oh, wow, you know, I didn't lose my father when I was young, but I did have this person in my life who went above and beyond much like your brother did, but they did it in this way. And so you end up making this amalgam of all your stories that are still telling the same story and they're still making the same point. They're just making it in a richer way than I could have ever done on my own. But um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And then it's wonderful for Corey and I, when we see people online who've seen the movie say, wow, that was my story. You know, that was, that was just like what happened to me or that makes me feel these feelings I have about my sister or my brother or mom and dad. And so that's really, really cool. It seems like when we have these conversations with creative teams from Pixar, there's always some sort of new technical challenge <laughs> that every Pixar movie presents that has to be cracked. Uh, was there a specific kind of technical challenge on uh, on Onward that uh, that you guys had to sort of figure out before you could move forward? Well, you know, yeah, Dan, I mean, I think the truth is that the world was was tricky to figure out. And I think that was kind of a production design um, slash story issue. Technically, I think probably the most challenging thing was just the the array of characters that we had and the fact that the characters were all so different because they were different species. Um, and so just making sure that we had a full rich world of fantasy characters that were recognizable, that people would understand, but, but that also had our own kind of um, take on them um, and our own type of stylization. And so um, but I think just creating the the variety of characters was was a big deal. And it's, you know, the technology just, it goes so fast and it's so amazing what we can do every time, you know, you finish one movie and by the time you get into production on the next one, you have to, you ha literally have to almost learn what the new tools are and what you can do. Um, you know, what was impossible on Monsters University was much easier. Um, cloth, hair, all of that kind of stuff. We've just made such incredible strides that um, then it wasn't a problem anymore. So it wasn't like we ran into any technical issue and um, or, or needed something from the story and weren't able to do it because of technology. It's, you know, it's we can kind of do anything. Um, but I think what the story needed in this particular film was uh, a wide array of and species of of characters um, that all looked like they kind of fit into the same world, and that was our challenge. Um, so you guys obviously mixed up at, um, at Skywalker. Um, what was your approach with regards to uh, mixing uh, the sound of Onward um, and any unique sound design opportunities that you had uh, that you were able to capitalize on with a format like Dolby Atmos? We, you know, to be honest, as a director, I really trust the people I'm working with. I don't know that um, I always, I don't know that sound is always the place where I have the most opinions. Um, we had a phenomenal team and, and um, you know, we wanted to find, much like everything in the movie, we wanted to find that mix between something that felt very fantastical and big and 
scary and real and very everyday and mundane and, and uh, suburban. And so that was really important to us. I mean, for example, like magic is really a tricky thing as far as to design the look of it, but also the sound of it and try to do it in a way that maybe hasn't been done a million times. So for example, magic in our movie really represented chaos. It's like Ian having to deal with the chaos of his brother, Barley. Um, and so we wanted that magic to feel very uh, unreliable or naturalistic, like a fire or thunder getting out of control, as opposed to sounding too young. You know, some of our earlier passes of it, it sounded very, uh, you know, kind of fairy dust-esque. And, um, you know, these are like these, you know, teenage boys shooting off bottle rockets out, you know, in the parking lot is what it should be like. It should feel a little dangerous. So, um the team did a great job, uh, Shannon and Nia and, and everyone bringing that to life. Every Pixar film has a color palette um, where you pick a range of colors as to how you visually going to tell your story. Can you talk a little bit about that, that process? Early on when I met with Sharon Callahan, who's the DP of lighting on the film, you know, we talked about fantasy films and how a lot of times they're either brown uh, and very dark uh, at least more modern ones, or like fantasy illustration that was very, uh, a little garish and has a little bit of every color in it. I wanted to lean more toward, because it was a, still a comedy, I wanted to lean more toward a little bit of the garish, brightly colored and less toward the super, super dark, uh, edgy brown thing. Um, but what we really did was uh, just made sure we had a lot of you know, warm and cools to keep that feeling alive. Um, and I know there's certain rules that we set up about when we're in the modern world, you know, a lot of things are advertisements and t-shirts that are very uh, primary color bright. And um, and then when we get out into the, 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 the more uh, old days type of, of landscapes, getting into more subtlety. Um, but the other really important color thing to us was purple uh, representing dad. And purple is also uh, in a lot of fantasy paintings. So that kind of stuff is so fun to talk about and to work through with the whole team. Well, when we found out that we were going to be speaking with the two of you, we did we did put out a, a call on social media for questions. And we got uh, here's a, a really fun one from Kyle Ball, who's a film student at the University of North Texas. And uh, Kyle asked, how many days does it take for the lead actors to record their dialogue? And do they have animation of the characters to reference when they're doing those recordings? Recording of the dialogue happens over the course of about a year and a half or so, maybe two years even, depending on when we get started. So you kind of, because the, the script is never complete until the very end, at least in the way that we work. Um, and so we have versions of the script, but we have scenes that are kind of further along, if you will. And so we'll we'll grab a section of the film and 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 pick select sequences um, that we want the actor to record. And so we'll do a chunk on one day, and then we'll get them back a month later or a couple months later um, and record more. Um, and so it's kind of it it's done in a it's it's not necessarily economical or consistent. It's it's kind of because we need stuff up front but then it really spans the course of, of reining in the script and really getting it to where we want it to be. Yeah, and, and then I think the other part of the question was about 
do they see animation? Maybe not on the first session, but um, as we go, a lot of times the animators will take clips of their voice and animate them just to see how their voices look coming out of that, that character. So we'll bring those when we have them. And, um, and I think that often gives an actor an idea of like, oh, okay. Even, even that gives them an idea of like, you chose that clip from that movie. I see the kind of thing you want from me out of, out of my abilities, you know? And, um, and then obviously as scenes go on, we bring them in. And like, for example, Chris and Tom were very excited to see anything new. Um, and we would say, as Chris was leaving, we'd say like, we'd show him a clip and he'd get all excited and we'd say, we have one more if you want to see it. And he'd like, he said once, I'll sit and watch the whole movie right now if you've got it. But so it's, I, I think that inspires them too, to see what takes you're choosing and why. So. You did an incredible job with the dad in the fact you're only presenting the lower half of him and yet able to connect emotion uh, of like how he's expressing himself and communicating with the kids, but then also to the audience. You know, we have great animators here who like those kind of challenges. We, we, you know, we even walked around in khaki pants with like green screen bodysuits over us and acted out what that we thought we would do. And, uh, but in the end, it wasn't those big actions. We were doing a lot of clownish big actions. Um, it was the, really the subtle things once they got in there and started animating because I think when the character doesn't have a face, you look to anything else you can to understand what it's thinking. And so his feet tapping Ian lightly um, or, or even just tilting a little bit really give you an idea of like a shoulder shrug or, you know, um, it was really wonderful once we finally saw a few scenes animated to feel the comfort that this could work um, with subtlety. Yeah, the fact that the animators could get um, feet and a pair of shoes to emote uh, to the degree that they did was just amazing. Uh, and all credit uh, goes to them uh, in figuring that out, but it was beautiful. That's a great spot to wrap up. Dan and Corey, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about Onward and congratulations on your nomination for the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time with us. Well, there you have it. As you can imagine, this might be a difficult category to predict this year just because of the quality and the variety of all these nominated films. I'd like to thank all of our friends at Disney and Pixar, Netflix, and Apple for helping us put these together and providing all of those excellent clips. If you'd like to check out all of the nominated films in the category this year, you are in luck because they are all available now on their respective streaming platforms. And as always, we have links to each film in our show notes. We'll be back again soon with some of our regularly scheduled programming, but in the meantime, I hope you'll all be watching the Oscars on Sunday, April 25th. I'll see you on the red carpet. And by that, I mean, I will be sitting at home watching them just like everybody else. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This has been the Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry. Production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Tristan Enriquez. Thank you for listening. <laughs>